hopeless times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that we get to study your word together as a family, and we know, Lord, that you inspired the book. We know, Lord, that you're our teacher by your spirit. We know, Lord, that you could make unique application of these verses in our lives, quite apart from anything that we would think. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to have our hearts be moldable and, and ready to have you confront us on anything that you want to say to us. We thank you that you're a gracious God. We thank you that you're merciful. We're grateful, Lord, that you realize when you get us, you get a project, a long-term project, and you're okay with that. We're grateful that we could never exhaust your love. And Lord, we need to know those things as we go through your word and see these things that definitely need to work through our lives in, in bringing change. We're grateful, Lord, we're having you teach us and you have a heart of grace and love towards us as we look at these things. So we pray you direct us and lead us. We pray that you would teach us. We pray you'd set this time aside for your holy use. We're grateful, Lord, that we're sitting at your feet learning your eternal word that will outlive the heavens and the earth. We're grateful for all of that. So use all those things in our lives for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As we've looked at already, as we've gone through the book, this is Paul's last letter. He's in prison in Rome. He's in a dungeon. He's in a very dark place, literally and emotionally, I'm sure, mentally at times. I'm sure there's great spiritual warfare that Paul's uh, encountering as he pours out his heart by the Holy Spirit to his young protege, Timothy. And Timothy needed to hear everything that Paul had to say. Paul was passing on the ministry baton. Paul is helping Timothy deal with false teachers and dealing with all this difficulty that's, that's before him, but also going to increasingly be his portion through the rest of his life. As we've studied, as we've looked at this book, we've seen that persecution is being ramped up. Hardship is increasing. Nero, Caesar Nero, is persecuting Christians at this point. He's, he set Rome on fire, and he's blaming Christians for, that, for the whole city of being engulfed in, in flames. And there's great persecution, waves of persecution. People are losing their life all the time for their faith. And so people are falling away as a result of it. Leaders are falling away. Paul has mentioned multiple leaders that have left, and he's not done. Paul is going to mention other leaders are going to fall away who love this present world and are not willing to endure difficulty. And Paul has been very specific with who those people are and and what they've been engaged in. And now Paul is wanting to protect Timothy from this. He wants to protect Timothy, and Paul knows that, that his character is what really needs to be focused on. As I mentioned, 1 Timothy is about how the church should function. 2 Timothy is about how Timothy should function, his character and his spiritual maturity. Last week, we saw in chapter 2, verse 15, Paul tell Timothy this, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
And then in chapter 2, verse 19, he further told him, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Paul's solution to falling into false doctrine and meaningless debates and arguments was to properly handle God's word, to make a straight cut, as it says, to rightly divide. That's what it means, to make a straight cut related to studying God's word, but also for Timothy to live a godly life. Living a godly life is its own protection. Living a godly life is its own reward. And then on top of that, God rewards us in heaven for obeying him in our calling in life. I mean, I can't get any better than that. And I'm a 49er fan. I don't hate to bring this up and cause division and all this, okay? I am a 49er fan. And right now, the coach there for the 49ers always says to his players after the game, who's got it better than us? And they yell back, nobody. And I couldn't help think about that when I was thinking about these verses. Because we as Christians, who has it better than us? Nobody. I should have you guys say it back. Who's got it better than us? There, see? It's true for us, even more so than the Niners, okay? This is eternal things here that outlive the heavens and the earth. Now, Paul gave very specific instructions last week touching on uh, what greatly affects our spiritual character. And he touched on it, and it's related to our study today. And I want us to look back at chapter 2, verse 22. And we can miss it if we don't look at it closely. Look back at, at chapter 2, verse 22. And he says, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And I'd like to call your attention to two words that we highlighted last week, and that's the two words, with those. Pursue these things, righteousness, faith, love, peace, but not by ourselves. To focus on who we're doing those things with, with those, that means other Christians. Timothy is not supposed to pursue those things by himself. He's supposed to do it with the help, with the aid, with the spiritual gifts of those that are other believers in his midst. And it's very important that we see that. But conversely, this week, he's going to look at the the, the flip side to that. He's going to tell Timothy to turn away from ungodly people. It's not good enough to merely just have Christians as our main staple, so to speak, related to our relationships. We have to say no to other relationships that are not good influences in our lives. And we can get very frustrated with our spiritual growth, and we can look at many things. And one of the things that sometimes we can look at is who we're around, who we're allowing to have influences or or allowing to have an influence in our lives, because it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. So Paul's going to focus on that this week, and he's going to describe all these characteristics of people that, that, uh, with whom Paul or Timothy shouldn't have a relationship. And he's going to give 19 different descriptions in these five verses related to who, what these people look like, what, what their lives are about, and, 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 and so forth. Now, as we begin, notice in verse 1, Paul gives the timing of when these people will come. He says the last days. He says in, in chapter 3, verse 1, but know this. That in the last days, perilous times will come. Now, we talk about the last days. We, say, we talk about it a lot in Christian circles. We say, these are the last days. That's right. You know, and Jesus is going to come any moment. And all kinds of different conversations related to prophecy and the end times. And we're throwing that word around. And the New Testament mentions it five times. 
The Old Testament mentions it a little bit different way. It says in the latter times, and it mentions that, that, uh, those two words 15 times in the Old Testament. But we're told in multiple places that the last days will be a, a, a context of ungodliness. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 tells us this. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. That's what, isn't that what Paul's describing here in this list? People that are walking according to their own lusts. So we think of the last days, and it's good for us to think that God, or, or to remember that God describes the time in which we live as the last days. You know what that encourages with is the fact that these days aren't going to last forever. <laughs> you know, when we cry out to the Lord, Maranatha, you know, Lord, come quickly. Because we go through difficulty and trials and hardship, and we have our sinful nature that, that battles against uh, holiness and God's calling upon our lives. And God reminds us just by saying the, last, the word last in the, in the context of, of his kind of uh, you know, end time timetable to remind us that it's not going to last forever. There is an end to all of this. There's an end to man's sinful rule in this world. Haven't we proved to ourselves, whether Democrat or Republican or whatever party, that man can't rule himself well? We can't because we're sinful. And a house divided against itself will not stand. And we're divided against ourselves. We're divided against others. No wonder we can't have success and we can't rule well. Only those that are submitted to the Holy Spirit in any context, spiritual, civil, uh, legal, whatever context you may want to look into, only people that are submitted to God and fear, fear him and are respecting his word ever oversee anything well. And so I'm looking forward to the day, and I'm sure you are too, where the Lord Jesus rules. And finally, we'll have someone that isn't, he doesn't need to be reelected, that isn't, doesn't care about the polls, who's just, who does what's right every single time, that the media can't slander. And, you know, it just, I can't wait for that day. And, and it's coming. But what constitutes the last days? And I want us to quickly look at a couple passages so we understand it, because that will help us understand the passage. Hold your place here and turn over to Acts chapter 2. So turn over to your left. Go over to Acts chapter 2. And let's look at verse 14 and following. Acts 2, 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what uh, was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In this passage, we see that the last days go at least back to the day of Pentecost. 
And they continue all the way into the seven-year tribulation. Because we see that in verses 19 and 20. He's describing things which occur after the rapture all the way up to the great tribulation and the coming of the Lord. So the last days at least goes back to the day of Pentecost. But it actually goes further back a little bit more than, uh, it goes further back still. If you look uh, at Hebrews chapter 1 quickly, and we will get back to 2 Timothy. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to see how far back the last days go. Maybe this is eye-opening to you if you thought the last day started in 2007. (laughs) Uh, But it goes back a little further than that. Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So the the last day started when Jesus began his public ministry of teaching and revealing uh, the Father to mankind on this earth. And it continues, as I said, today and all the way into the future, into the seven-year tribulation, all the way up to his second coming. You can turn back to uh, 2 Timothy. Now, you may ask, it begs the question, well, if the last days have started back when Jesus' public ministry and it continues into our future, then what do we mean when we talk about the last days being like it's almost going to be culminated and Jesus is almost going to be, you know, he's coming back any moment. And I mean, isn't there a little bit of a different distinction between what we're experiencing right now in our time and what they've always experienced? And And the answer is yes. In Matthew 24, Jesus spoke about the end of the age. There's a difference between the end of the age and the last days. The last days started Jesus' public ministry, continue through the tribulation and so forth. But there's going to come a time where Jesus culminates it all and he comes back physically to this earth. And that is the end of the age. And in Matthew 24, and you can read it on your own, you can look and see what he's talking about related to what's going to happen in this world. And he's basically describing the seven-year tribulation and more specifically Uh, the Great Tribulation, which is the last three and a half years of that seven-year time period, just before his physical coming. Now, he described his physical coming and the signs that would precede that, and he compared it to a woman having labor pains. Now, I'm the first to admit I know nothing about labor pains. I'm not even going to pretend. So I know better than that because I do have no clue. But one thing that we do know about labor pains is that you can't miss them. You know, there's Braxton Hicks where you think you had them, but that's more for women, I think, that have never had children before. What they really have and they're really coming and there's really no arguing because of the, of what they really are, you're not, you're not mistaken. You're not, oh, you know, I went through labor last night and didn't know it. You know, I mean, you know it. There's no missing it. Secondly, they, they occur closer and closer together as you get closer to the birth and they increase in intensity. And so he's saying these signs that are going to come right before my second coming are going to increase in intensity. You're not going to know that they're not, you're not going to be able to mistake them, those that have spiritual eyes, and that, that they're going to come closer and closer together. Pastor Chuck Smith gives a great classic illustration for this because we start, we're starting to see 
this, this, the, those things start to come to pass more and more. We're starting to see signs of his second coming. And, and Pastor Chuck has this illustration where one time he was, he was riding in, driving in his car, and, and it, was, uh, it was before uh, Thanksgiving. It was probably around you know, the middle of October. And he sees Christmas lights up. And he sees decorations up, all, and it's not even Thanksgiving yet. And he says to his wife Kay, he, says, he said to her, wow, Thanksgiving's right around the corner. And she said, Chuck, these are Christmas things. And he goes, I know, but if I'm seeing the things that are associated with Christmas now, how much closer are we, are, are, are we to the rapture of the church? And, and this, you know, th- that's how he compared it. So if we're seeing Christmas things, how much closer we are to Thanksgiving? Just like if we're seeing the signs of the second coming of Christ, how much closer are we to the rapture, which happened seven years before that? And so he, he spoke a lot about these things that are going to be happening in the last days, and we're going to see more intensity as we get closer to the end. The main thing that's happened that's gotten all of this going or, or shown us that these, these things are coming to pass is Israel becoming a nation again. In 1948, that started the, a prophetic uh, time clock that, that is going to culminate in the second coming of Christ. And one of the signs that Jesus gave in Matthew 24 relates to our passage. That's why I'm bringing it up. And he said in Matthew 24, verse 12, and he says, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. That's the tie-in to this passage. Because, yes, it's true that all these things have existed that we're going to be looking at for all this time, 2,000 years almost. But the intensity of them is increasing because we're getting closer to the second coming. And Jesus mentioned in Matthew 24 that one of the signs of the second coming is that lawlessness will abound. Now, as we look at our verses, he says, perilous times will come. We need to know that perilous means fierce. Usually we don't use the perilous a lot. We're not saying, watch out for that Doberman pincher because that dog is perilous. (laughs) We don't say that. But but we do say that dog is fierce. You need to get away from that that dog. And so that's what he's saying. And the only other time in the New Testament this word is used is to describe the demoniac. Remember the the man that was uh, filled with legions of, of demons and Jesus exercised those demons and cast them into a herd of pigs. And that, when, they used, when the Holy Spirit used words to describe that demoniac, he used the same word for fierce here or perilous here. And so it, it, it's very difficult times, very hard times, very wicked times. But the, before we get into the characteristics, though, of these times, we need to understand who this group of people, who they are. Because we can think that they are people that are out in the world. And that's how usually this passage is taught. This world's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And, and, and we need to recognize that as we live our Christian lives. But there's a little problem with that, and that's verse 5. Look with me there. I know I'm skipping down, but we'll come back. It says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power. This is talking about religious people. This isn't talking about atheists. They don't have a form of of atheism, but they're they're denying the power. It's a form of godliness. These people are religious people. These people are, yes, allowing the world to to affect them. So the world is going the same direction, but they're allowing the, the world's ways to encroach upon their spiritual growth, or at least they're professing to be uh, true believers, but they are, are not living that way. And it's a very good, healthy thing for us to see. 
The context, as we've been seeing, is not the world. The context that Paul's been speaking from to Timothy is that there's people that are they're leaders. They're professing to be leaders. They're, they're people that claim to be Christians in the church. And Timothy needs to deal with those and not, not uh, fall prey to the same things they're falling prey to. The context is profess- professors, <laughs> professing Christians there, religious people. And we know that because it, in the end of verse 5, he says, from such turn away. Well, he, that can't be the world. He'd have to turn away from everyone he ever comes in contact with out there. He's talking about people in his immediate influence to turn away from those people. So these are people that are religious, and that's very important for us to see. Now think about who the people were that Jesus you know, hit head on with in his ministry. Were they atheists? No, they were religious people. They were religious leaders called Pharisees and Sadducees. And they came against Jesus. They were wicked. He was always gracious with the common people. The common people accepted him gladly, we're told. They were, they, he was very attractive to them. That says something to us as Christians. Unbelievers need to be attracted to, to, to the Lord inside of our lives. And if they're not, there's something that needs to change in our lives. But these men were wicked people. And the, the, the most wicked people are the people that are stumbling people spiritually. And that they are misrepresenting God. That's why you see all the anger come out from the Lord Jesus in Matthew 23. Blind guides. You, your cup is filthy on the inside. You're, it's clean on the outside. Again, a form of godliness. But inside it's disgusting and horrible. And, and you're full of dead man's bones. I mean, he never spoke like that to, to just the unbelievers that were around. But he spoke it to people that claimed to be religious and went through the motions, but inwardly were completely different from, from, than what they were outwardly. And it's a very sobering, sobering thing for us to, to look at. Now he begins in verse 2. He said, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, and unholy. So we want to start with lovers of themselves. And we can do a whole sermon on that. <laughs> I mean, I could have a whole... Uh, confession time uh, of things you know where I fall short and lovers I mean we love ourselves (laughs) and the mantra that we hear is that well Jesus said in Matthew 22 verse 34 and following that we need to to love God with all of our heart with all of our soul with all of our mind and that's the first and greatest commandment we need to love others as ourselves. and so what we hear is yes we know that and we agree to that but we're told and this isn't biblical that I have to first learn how to love myself so then I can love others. And God never says that. He presupposes that we already love ourselves. And that's the problem. That's the problem, that we love ourselves too much. And and so we can disagree with that and say, well, I don't love myself. I hate myself. Well, when you look at a picture, and it could be a picture of a thousand people, who do you look for first? You look for yourself. Oh, no, I, 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 I'm, I don't love myself because when I find myself in that picture, I'm mad because I'm ugly. Well, if you, didn't, if you, if you truly hated yourself, you'd be glad that you were ugly, <laughs> if indeed you're ugly. You know, you're not mad about your hair getting messed up or whatever if you, if you don't love yourself. We love ourselves. That's the problem. And so the, this world coddles that and, and encourages that. Now, I'm not saying we should hate ourselves in the sense that we need to, because we need to recognize that God created us in his image. 
And we need to, and God's given us dignity. I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me. But we put ourselves first all the time. And that's what he's saying when he says, lovers of themselves. There's a popular YouTube series of videos called I Am Second. Some of us have seen those videos where people give their testimony. And I like them. I like them a lot. I think they're great. I think that they should be called, in my opinion, I am third. Because I think that God should be first, others should be second, and I should be third. And we think of that in the context of our spiritual growth and church and all of that. We think that church is supremely for us, and it's not. Church is supremely for God, and it's supremely for others. And when I try to have it be supremely for me first, and I pursue blessing myself through how God has set things up, then I usually forget the other two. But if I focus on the other two and love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, love my neighbor as myself, then I end up, as an implication of that, end up being blessed and mature and be, you know, made into a disciple like God wants for my life. But I didn't, that didn't happen by me purposely pursuing that and putting myself first. It happened through me obeying God, loving God, worshiping God, and loving others. And then I progress and I'm discipled and I'm blessed. God wants us blessed. He set it up in part for us to be blessed the way he set up the church. But I shouldn't go after those things and pursue those things and put myself first. I need to put him first. And that's, that's very important. Sometimes people wonder why they're not growing. But because they are loving themselves and putting themselves first, then they get frustrated. They don't realize that it's precisely because they've been putting themselves first that they're not growing. And think we, it, it all goes back to remembering that we're a steward. That everything that I have, my time, all my money, not just my giving to the church, all my money is his, and my talents, my, my influence, my relationships, all those things belong to him. That's a big revelation to us when we first come to know the Lord. But there are people that can go through their Christian walk for years and years and years and not learn that. And, and some churches don't help because many of their messages are man-centered, it's all about to be, you know, five principles for being this and 12 successful whatever's to be that. And, and that's fine. God, God has principles for us in that. But that's seeking out my fulfillment first instead of putting God first. He didn't say seek my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added to me. He said seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to us. So it's very important that we focus on God and others, and then we'll grow. But we have to realize that this culture and sadly parts of the body of Christ are professing Christianity coddle selfishness and putting ourselves first. And how many times have we heard, well, you need to put your, you know, your own needs first. We need to put God first and then people and then our, our own lives. Now he says lovers of money I'm so glad that that's irrelevant for our culture so we can move on to the next one. <laughs> Come on. Is this, people say the Bible's not relevant for today. It just cracks me up. I mean, how can you not get any more relevant? And lovers of money, you know, we used to say people were greedy, and that was a bad thing. <laughs> you know, now it's, yeah, they're greedy, they're aggressive, they're, they're proactive in business. And, you know, uh, we have people in movies say, you know, greed is a, is a tool and all these things. And greed is, is not good. We're told in scripture that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so we're told by the Lord Jesus that no one can serve two masters. Either you love one 
and hate the other, or you can't have total devotion. And God knew that, that the context needed for, for us to see that would have to be money. You, ca- you can't serve both God and mammon. You can't serve both God and money. And, in, and, in, and you think that it's only in, a, in an affluent society that they deal with this, but greed can come in any socioeconomic situation. You could be in a very poor country and people be greedy because it doesn't originate in the abundance of what a country has. It originates in our own flesh, our own sinful nature. And so every society deals with that. But this country has so much affluence and so much wealth, we have the resources to distract ourselves away from what God's calling us to to be about. And we can do all kinds of things and we can forget that he's calling us to be faithful. He's calling us to be consistent, whatever that means for our lives and our callings. And we're going to have to give an account for that. So it's, it's very exhortive for us to think about. We can't just do things without considering what God wants and, and be in prayer about things and taking things before the Lord. Everything. Our, we make decisions all the time without praying. And James says, we shouldn't say we're going to do this, go to this city and do that, and then go here and do that. He says, say if it's the Lord's will. And that's talking about bringing these things before the Lord and say, do you want me to go on that weekend trip? Maybe he wouldn't want you to go on that. I mean, I know we need to all get away at times. I'm not (laughs) criticizing that. But whatever decision that we're thinking about, where we're spending our money or how we're spending our time or trips or, or extracurricular things, taking those things before the Lord and say, Lord, is this what you have for me? Because I'm a supremely a lover of you, not myself. And that's healthy for all of us to see. Where else are we going to see this message? Where in this world are you going to see that the problem is that we love ourselves too much? I was so encouraged this week as I was studying this. Because only in God's word, even in many, many Christian bookstores, you're not going to see it. It's getting less and less and less and less where we are confronted with ourselves that we're the problem. And our sinful nature needs to be killed, crucified daily, and, and to follow him wherever he leads. When he called those people in the New Testament, he didn't say, well, you know, I got a contract for you. Here is what I'm supplying and this is what your expectation is. This is how long we're going to be there. And this is what the price that you're going to pay. And this is what you're going to experience. And we're like in a negoti- they weren't like in a negotiating situation with God. He said, come and follow me. And they left. And he said later, he who puts his hand to the plow and looks back isn't fit for the kingdom of God. There was an urgency. There was, you're going to go where I'm going to tell you to go. And it's not up to you to decide what you're going to do and where you're going to go. It's up to me to decide because I've purchased you. You were on the slave block. You were a, a, in, in, in a, slave, you were a slave to sin. And, and I purchased you. I bought you with the price. You are not your own anymore. Maybe some of us need to re- be reminded of that. That he's not just our Savior. He's our Lord. And he gets to tell us where we're going and tell us where, we're, where we need to be and, and where we need to spend our resources and, and all these things. He's your Lord. That was the deal. And maybe some of us need to come back to that and realize that he's the one that that is leading me around. I'm not living my life, adding God to my life, and asking him to bless what I want to do. That's not biblical Christianity. That is nowhere found in the Bible. And I don't care how many books are out there saying that's okay. God's word says it's not okay. He's the one that's in charge of our life. And it's the best life. We don't have to question where he's going to lead our lives. He said, I have come that they'd have life and have it more abundantly. We don't, have to, we don't have to doubt God and challenge what he has for us. It's always what's best. It's hard. It's difficult. 
but it's best. No one at the end of their life, and I've been with people at the end of their life, no one at the end of their life looks back and regrets totally abandoning their lives to the Lord's will. They never look back and say, I wish I would have had more money. I wish I would have had more power or entertainment or five houses or whatever it is. They always say, I wish I would have obeyed the Lord more. I wish I would have put him first more. Without an exception, people never, ever doubt where God could have brought them if they would have believed him and been obedient. But we let all these things come in and compete against that. And they're not bad things. Hebrews chapter 12 says there's weights that come in and the sin that so easily ensnares us. There's weights that are good. They're freedoms. They're liberties for the Christian. But God hasn't called us to those things potentially. That's why we have to bring those things before the Lord. He may allow someone else to do those things and it'd be totally in line with God's will. And we look at them and say, oh, well, it has to be okay with me. No, not necessarily. We have different callings. We have different, God has different plans for each one of us. And so we have to be very, very careful. And I know that, I know that God's speaking to, to some of us because he's speaking to me. I'm not the only one that's going to be convicted here. I just want you to know that for the record. Uh, you know, you go through God's word and you're going to get, you're going to get hit by stuff and it's all good stuff. Now, he moves on, and, and trust me, we're not going to spend a lot of time on a lot of these things. You don't have to worry about me. I'm going to get done. Um, but he continues on with boasters here. And that, that used to be called a, a braggart. And that used to be a bad thing in our culture, too. It's when you're self-promoting. It's not trusting in God's reputation that he brings for you. If The enemy knows if he can get us trying to chase our reputation and correct that, that we're going to be distracted from a lot of things that God has uh, us to be a part of. And so we shouldn't be boasters because, because it's all from God. He says also proud there. And it means to see yourself above. That's what it means to be prideful. And we could be very prideful in our humility. Ever seen someone go out of their way to, I mean, they're just, I'm the worst person in this world and I just can never do anything right. You know, that's false humility. Humi- humility is seeing yourself accurately. Having a, an accurate uh, um, assessment of yourself you can say that you're a good whatever and in, in, in you know you're a, you I do this well that's not being prideful if you're giving God the glory because it's ultimately from him but he says that's pride and, and we know that the first sin was pride in Lucifer pride was found in his heart and he wanted to be lifted up and he was cast down to earth and became Satan and so we don't want to do that blasphemers saying things that we shouldn't say about God. And we don't think of ourselves as blasphemers, of course. But when you say things that are against God's character, even in the smallest degree, you're, getting, you're coming along those lines. And we have to be careful with that. And a disobedience to parents. That's, I'm glad the youth are in here. But it's not just for youth. It's for adults as well. It doesn't mean that our parents, for adults, get to tell us what to do in our lives, but we need to honor our parents and, and, and take in consideration their counsel. God's placed them in our lives to, you know, if they're good counselors, of course, God's placed them in our lives to, to learn from and to take in their counsel. But youth, you young people that are here, be wise. Listen to your parents. Obey what they say. They're trying to protect you from things that you don't even know anything about. And I know what it's like to be youth and think that you know everything, and you don't. 
And I know that many of you, I've talked to you, you know that you don't know everything and you're not saying that, but you need to trust the direction of your parents. That's a place of safety for you. And that's a place where God can bless you. And, and so uh, be very mindful of that as well. He continues with unthankful. How many times, and we can just pass over this. How many times do we not think of what someone went through to provide something for us? Someone set these chairs up for you today. Someone made coffee for you. Someone paid the bill to have the utilities on. Someone has prepared all week to bring a lesson to your children. Someone has gone through the effort of doing background checks for those people so that they're safe people to be around your children. Someone has, has, I mean, you go on and on and on. There's things that people have done that God wants us to be thankful to them, of course, to be encouragement to them, but also to be thankful to him. And it's so beautiful when you're at a restaurant and you see people hold hands and and thank the Lord. And it's, it's amazing how that can just bring the attention of the whole room to that one spot. And it's saying to everybody, we're thankful. We're thankful for this meal. We recognize that God has provided it for us. And it really tells them that they should be thankful, too. It says a lot. And that's still legal, but you never know when that'll go. <laughs> uh, not that you can't pray in your heart. He says, unholy. Now, this is really criticized in our culture. Oh, no, he's a holy roller. Now, I know what that means traditionally, and I know that that can mean a lot of legitimately you know, bad things, with people that are rude and obnoxious and ultra-legalistic and so forth. But when uh, holiness is, is something that is a beautiful thing to God. He wants us to share in that attribute of his. I'm not sure that he asks us to be, uh, share that attribute, you know, any other attribute with him to that extent than holiness. But today we can not care at all about what we allow into our lives, what programs we, allow, we watch, what things we listen to, the people that we're around. God wants us to be set aside. That's what it means, to be set apart for his special use. There's got to be people in this world that people look at and say, that's what Jesus would have looked like in this world. That's what he, I know what Jesus would look like because I've seen these people live a different kind of life. What if all of us did that? But, that's, but the bar is getting lower and lower and lower. I see it all the time. Things that Christians would never engage in 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. Now it's just common. They, and, and, of course, they're ultra-defensive. Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to be engaged in legalism. You can't tell. No, no, there's principles in Scripture for what I'm saying to you. It's not something that man made up. There's, there's principles in Scripture, and, and we're, like, bucking against that. God wants us to be holy. Verse 3, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good. Unloving is the word storge. It's the word for family love. So it's talking about the natural family love that, that is, is in a home. But now we're seeing uh, rampant divorce, the breakdown of the family unit. We're seeing child abuse. We're seeing, of course, abortion. All these things are fighting against that natural family love. People doing things to their kids that you would never dream of seeing 10, 20 years ago. Now it's very common where people are, are doing things that are, is totally unnatural. That's the only way that you can, uh, only way you could describe it. Unforgiving. God has a very high intolerance for unforgiveness in his people because of what he's forgiven us of. And so that's something, and I know it's a process. It's not just a one-time thing, and then you have to never think about it again sometimes. It's an ongoing thing you bring before the Lord, and you forgive over and over again as an act of obedience when I'm intentionally not holding something against somebody anymore. 
It doesn't mean I have to trust them again. But it, doesn't, but it does mean I need to forgive them and not hold that against them. Because God's, God's the one that's going to bring all those things uh, into what they should be. You know, like, if a person needs to be disciplined, God, God has a way of disciplining people. And so we need to trust him. So we have to be forgiving. Slanderers. That's literally the word devil-tongued. I think that's appropriate. Uh, slanderers. Devil-tongued. Because the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. And that's what slandering is. It's accusing somebody that should never be found in the lives of God's people. And it doesn't mean that there's an exception with our spouses. We can't talk about negative against people any other time. But when I'm with my spouse, we can just freely talk about people, you know, and slander them all we want. That's not what God's word says. We need to be careful to not slander. Without self-control. Ouch. (laughs) Wow. Now, we know that the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. But self-control, that is something out in this world that will stand out because so much of the world doesn't have self-control. But that can creep in to to people professing to be Christians as well, to where their lives don't represent self-control. They they go extreme on everything. There's no boundaries that they set. They're not temperate. They don't have that sense that, okay, I've gone far enough. I I shouldn't go any further. We should be known for being those with self-control. The fruit of the Spirit produces that. Or the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And God produces that in our lives. He says brutal. That just means savage. That's another word for savage. To be completely cruel and without any compassion And that has many different forms. But a lack of concern for other people in need is what I think of the most. People that are in need and we just pass right by them. We don't even think about them. We need to think about who Jesus would talk to, who Jesus would want to come and help. And we can just pass by people and and be insensitive to their needs. Why? Because we're lovers of ourselves. We're thinking supremely of ourselves all the time instead of thinking about others. But God would have us to have self-control and, and be merciful to people that are going through difficult times. I love people with the gift of mercy. Many times they don't recognize that they have it. And we all should be merciful, but they have a supernatural capacity to be merciful beyond what they normally could, could be or other people are. And it's a beautiful thing despisers of good of course changing the definition of good lowering the bar saying that well that didn't used to be you know that wasn't didn't used to be acceptable but now it's acceptable we're progressing we hear that in the culture well we're beyond that now we're beyond thinking that that's wrong as if God doesn't know what's right and what's wrong and God doesn't know what's harmful to people but we have to be promoting what's good in in our lives that's why one of the things we need to dwell on when we think about whatever is love, lovely and of good report and whatever is good and, and all these things that we're supposed to meditate on, as Philippians tells us, we need to think about what's good because it's getting harder and harder to find what's good in this world. Verse 4, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Traitors is people that just cannot be trusted, people that won't stay true to their word. They say they're going to do something and they don't. They betray people for, for, for gain. For, for material gain, for position, for power, and they just they can't be trusted with anything. Not necessarily just talking about people that are traitors to their country. That's just one form of it. This is talking about just generally a person that betrays people 
And, and that should never be found in God's people. When people think about our lives, they need to think about someone that can be trusted, that will never betray me, that will be like Jesus who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said he would never leave us, and we shouldn't leave one another either. Headstrong. I can't relate to that, so let's move on. I'm just kidding. Headstrong. My wife's not here, so I can uh, say that. But, uh, uh, but that's where you're just stubborn, where you're not teachable, where you're not humble, where you're just thinking that you know the right way and you're not bending no matter what. There's got to be a submission to one another, both in our marriages and in our families and, and just in our, maybe at our places of work or school. We need to be people that are, can, can, can give and to, to compromise not our principles, but work with people and to, to, not, to be open to being wrong. That's a big revelation for some people. That you could possibly be wrong. I told you a week or two ago that I used to be the king of argue, arguing. I think it was last week. And I would never win or lose an argument. No matter what. Even if I was losing, I wouldn't lose. I would just stand there and hold my ground and never admit it. That's headstrong. And, and so something that we need to keep in mind as well. Haughty, that's self-important or being condescending to others. And then lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow. Is that our culture or what? Lovers of, you know how many billions of dollars are spent on entertainment? Just in this country alone, billions and billions of dollars a year is spent on culture. I mean, in our culture on entertainment and so forth. And, and, and what it does